And please turn once again to Revelation chapter 15. We just sang, my righteousness is Jesus' life, emphasizing the imputation that Jesus achieves for us a perfect righteousness necessary to be acceptable to God. My debt was paid by Jesus' death, so my sins are laid upon him. In Christ, we become the righteousness of God because he who knew no sin, that's his righteousness, became sin for us, our debts laid upon him. The, in a sense, two sides of imputation. His righteousness comes to us. Our, our sin, our debt goes to him. Thank the Lord for the goodness of the gospel. Well, this morning, we're coming to a new section uh, or a new cycle in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> I said earlier it's the fourth cycle, which is correct, but there are actually three cycles of sevens. Uh, there are seven seals, which is the first cycle, seven trumpets, which is the second, and the seven plagues or the seven bowls of God's wrath we find here is actually the fourth cycle, but the third of the sevens. But each one comes to us with increasing intensity. The seven seals, we read that a quarter of the earth is destroyed by the rider on the pale horse. In the seven trumpets, it's increased. A third of the earth, the sea, the rivers, the waters are all destroyed. Both of these judgments describe partial destruction. But here when we come to the seven plagues, it's the final outpouring of the wrath of God upon the earth. And chapter 15, with them the wrath of God is finished, verse 1, or complete. Simon Kistemaker in his commentary says, this last cycle ends with complete and total judgment. The end of chapter 16 says the seventh angel poured out his bowl of wrath and said, it is done. The completion of the wrath of God poured out upon the earth. Now, chapter 15 is the lead up. It's the introduction of these angels and these seven bowls of wrath. We see the seven angels with their seven plagues. We see one of the four living creatures giving to the angel these bowls, these golden bowls of the wrath of God. But they're actually poured out, as we'll see in our next message uh, in chapter 16. They're poured out in that chapter. They're described there. So this morning we're looking at chapter 15 and the scene of heaven anticipating these seven plagues that are contained in the seven bowls. I want to be careful because when we say that We call it the final outpouring of the wrath of God and say the wrath is finished or it is done. We're not saying that God's wrath ceases to be expressed for all time. Last week we looked at the, in chapter 14, what's called the harvest of the earth. Look at verses, chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 in chapter 14, he also, speaking of those who receive the mark of the beast, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of his name. Scripture clearly teaches there is no rest and no chance of redemption or rescue or relief for the wicked under the eternal wrath of God. That's the wrath of God for all time poured out in hell. But this is the temporal wrath of God, the final outpouring of his wrath upon those who are yet on the earth. 
And after that, after that seventh bowl and it is done, comes the triumphant return of the Lord Jesus Christ in the final judgment. So before these seven bowls are poured out on the earth, we see this scene in heaven. We're introduced to the seven angels. We're introduced to the saints who are singing the praises of the Lord. And the song they're singing is actually inspired by the outpouring of God's wrath. And if my saying that makes you just a little bit uncomfortable, it should. It should. By the end, you'll understand what I'm saying. And you'll say, Lord, let us know you better. So let's talk, first of all, of the nature of God's wrath. I've been talking about God's wrath over and over again in the study and seeing how all these uh, catastrophes and calamities on the earth are expressions of God's temporal wrath or judgment. And last week we talked about his eternal wrath. But what do we mean when we say the wrath of God? What does that refer to? There There are those in our day that want to emphasize the love of God, and they're not comfortable talking about sin, and they're certainly not talking about wrath. They would say, oh, well, well, well that's talking about the God of the Old Testament. We, we worship the God of the New Testament who is love. God is love, the Bible says in 1 John. Well, I don't know what they do when they come to the book of Revelation. Because the most graphic depictions of the wrath of God are found in Revelation, and that is in the New Testament. And it's filled with terrifying descriptions of the wrath of God. In chapter 6, we find the wicked of this earth crying out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of God. Or from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Those who would contrast the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, here we have... The Lamb of God, the epitome of his love, but the wicked are crying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, God's anger is not like our anger. This is so very important to understand. God's anger is altogether different from our anger. We become sinfully and selfishly angry when somebody offends us, all right? When my rights have been trampled on, when my expectations have not been met, when you cross my will, and I don't like it, and so we become angry. But God's angry anger never arises from anything sinful in himself. His anger, his wrath is holy. And because God is holy, he has a holy hatred for sin in every expression and form. So God's wrath is his righteous and holy response to the sinfulness and to the sin of men. It is his holy anger stirred up against the sin of men. Richard Brooks, Puritan, said his wrath is, excuse me, it's one of the commentators, I'm sorry. Uh, He says his wrath is his holiness stirred into action against sin, and it leads to his executing a sentence of judgment and punishment upon the wicked. It's his holiness stirred into action because of sin, against sin, leading to an execution of the sentence of judgment and punishment on the wicked. Again, I want to emphasize his wrath is not due to some lack of self-control. It's the perfect and pure expression of his holiness and justice. It is the right and proper expression of the holiness of our God towards sinful people. Now, when we use the word wrath, I said earlier, 
It, it should make us a little uncomfortable. It ought to make us uncomfortable. There's something about it that, that arrests our attention. When the psalmist says, my God is a righteous God, uh, a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day, that ought to make us a little, a little uncomfortable. Or in Romans 1, when Paul writes, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Wrath is a very stark word. Jeffrey Thomas wrote an article about the wrath of God as it's revealed in the scriptures, and he says this. He said, uh, he said there's some who would not like to use the word wrath. They'd rather talk about divine retribution, which is an accurate definition, as it were, but this is what he says. He says, the phrase divine retribution is not as clear or vivid a phrase as the wrath of God although it means the same thing. It's more academic. It fails to sound as clear an alarm. It puts more distance between the sinner and the God who has been offended by his sin. Righteous retribution somehow sounds safe. Wrath sounds threatening. So it should sound in our hearts and minds a clear alarm. It should say to the person who yet remains under the wrath of God, wake up, flee from the wrath to come. To the only one who can bring salvation to your souls. In chapter 14, we have the harvest of the earth where the wrath of God is poured out in the final judgment. And God's wrath is expressed there eternally as their torments never end. Speaking of hell. But as I've said many times before, the book of Revelation doesn't fit a timeline. It doesn't give us a timeline. So we're in a new cycle. And uh, uh, the cycles of God's judgment are being repeated with greater intensity. So we're going back now in chapter 15 to the temporal wrath of God being poured out in the present age where his wrath is poured out on the wicked of this earth leading up to the final day of judgment. So again, chapter 14 are those, is the eternal, unending outpouring of God's wrath on the wicked. Chapter 15 and 16 are the temporal outpouring of God's wrath in the present age up until the final judgment and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That said, let's go look into the text now and let's look at the introduction of these seven angels and the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Verse 1, I saw another, or then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, again, this is not the full satisfaction of God's eternal wrath. This is the, uh, that, that eternal torment awaits the wicked, but it says the completion of his temporal wrath. But for the present time, until this day, that final day when Jesus comes back, God is continuing to pour out his wrath upon sinners in countless ways. As we read in Romans 1, 18 a moment ago, the wrath of God is being revealed. It's describing something that's happening right now. In the seals and the trumpets, it reveals how God's wrath is being revealed now. But again, as we come to this text, we find that in this series of seven plagues or the seven bowls of God's wrath, with them, the wrath of God is finished. And we see in verse 2, this sea of glass mixed with fire. The sea of glass speaks of God's holiness. The fire speaks of his wrath. 
his judgment. And standing beside the sea are the saints in heaven, those who conquered the beast and its image and its number, or the number of its name. And you remember the number of its name is 666. We said a few weeks ago, that number 666, it's, seven is a perfect number, six is one short of it, and repeated three times over emphasizes the utter defeat and failure of those who follow after the beast and receive his mark. So you have those who have conquered the beast and its image and, those who, and that number that would say, if you don't get this number, you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't live in this earth. But they have the seal of the spirit in contrast to the mark of the beast. And they triumph over their enemies. They conquered the beast. Now, from the perspective of this earth, Christians don't look all that strong. We don't look all that victorious. We look like we are being defeated in many cases. We look weak. We look feeble. We look unimpressive. But the reality is, from the perspective of heaven, which is what really matters, it is the children of God who sealed in the spirit who conquer the beast in its image and its number. Dennis Johnson says, the beleaguered church on earth, so seemingly weak and outnumbered, must never forget the mystery of God's kingdom growing powerfully through our frailty. Do not forget, God's kingdom will not be defeated. And every citizen of God's kingdom will arrive safely home. And we will be those who overcome. We will be those who conquer. No matter how weak and feeble and discouraged and defeated we might feel. We're not called to walk by how we feel. We're, to call, we're called to walk by faith, not by sight. By faith, not by feelings. The world looks at these in this, uh, this image here. The world looks at these as the biggest losers in the world. But we know better. So... Remember, I told you this, 666 corresponds to the mark or the seal of the Holy Spirit. It symbolizes uh, the unyielding failure of those who follow after the enemy. It's like taking a big uh, L and branding it on on their foreheads. I am a loser. Now, again, people in the world don't see that. But we recognize that spiritual reality. Just like you can't see the seal of the Spirit, you can't see the mark of the beast, but it, is, it, it indicates allegiance, and it indicates defeat. It's a badge of shame, not triumph. So here we have these angels, or excuse me, these saints in heaven, they're holding the harps of God in their hands, and uh, they're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb, declaring God's praises. And I love this, these harps of God given to them by the Lord himself. In fact, everything we have is from God. Our salvation is from God. Uh, Our victory is from God. This new song in their mouths is from God, and the harps are from God. So let's look more in depth at the song of Moses and of the Lamb in verses 3 and 4. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is not two separate songs, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Rather, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are all one church, one people, and we have one song that we sing to the Lord. But the imagery 
takes us back to the shores of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15 where uh, the, the children of Israel have walked across on dry land as God separated the waters. And then Pharaoh and his armies presume to pursue in their attack through the dry land until they all become within the bounds of the waters. And then it comes crashing down and every single one of them perishes. And the children of Israel standing on the shore of the sea in wonder and amazement, break out in celebration and rejoicing. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. They're rejoicing over their great deliverance from bondage and slavery in Egypt, but they're also rejoicing and in awe and wonder at God's wrath having just been poured out on Pharaoh and his army. Pharaoh appears to be the most powerful force in this, in the world as they knew it, and they just watched him utterly obliterated. And they could say, we can only give glory to our God. So here in chapter 15, we have the saints standing on the edge of this sea of glass and fire, replicating, as it were, the children of Israel after the, dead, the Red Sea was, was, was parted and their uh, enemies were destroyed. And they're witnessing the judgment of God being poured out upon the wicked of this earth. And they're rejoicing at the righteousness of God that is being revealed in his wrath. Now, the delivery of the children of Israel in Exodus is the great redemptive act of the Old Testament. And over and over in the Psalms, we find the celebration of their redemption recounted in the Exodus. And it is foreshadowing, it's prefiguring the great redemptive act of the New Testament where Jesus dies to pay for our sins and delivers us from our bondage to sin and to death. That's the great redemptive act of the New Testament. And the song of, the Mo- of Moses and of the Lamb is one song, not two. It's a celebration of the redeemed for the victory, the triumph won by our champion. So, when, you come, when we come to chapter 16, which we will, we'll, we'll see numerous allusions to that Old Testament deliverance. We'll see plagues that, that reflect very much the plagues in Exodus. However, in Exodus there were ten plagues. In Revelation there are seven plagues. Imagine that. Seven, of course, is the number that we see over and over, the number of perfection we see in the book of Revelation. But also... We, we, we see Pharaoh in, in Exodus continuing, time after time, continuing to harden his heart and refuse to repent or refuse to let God's people go. And twice in Revelation 16, it says that those who are suffering that for this temporal wrath of God, even so, in their torment, they refuse to repent and give glory to God. Well, let's look at the contents of this song because it, it presents for us a, a marvelous, a biblical view of who God is. It's blending, it actually blends together many Old Testament songs of praise to the Lord from, Deuteron- excuse me, from Deuteronomy, from Jeremiah, from Psalms. It really doesn't have any of the wording of the song of Moses per se, but it reflects that triumph. So, we're actually, I want to unpack this line by line, if we may. So, when they, they begin the song, they say, great and amazing or marvelous your deeds. This word amazing or marvelous, it, it, it indicates something that is so overwhelming, it causes amazement, but coupled with terror. It's not like 
Well, that's really fantastic. It's, it's like, oh, it's sobering, and it's amazing. It, it arrests the attention. It's majestic. It's perfect. It's pure, and it's powerful. Great and amazing are your deeds. And the deeds that they are celebrating are not simply the deliverance from the beast and his image and his number. They've, they've overcome those, the, 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 the enemy, and they rejoice in that certainly. But they are celebrating and rejoicing over God's victory over all his and our enemies. His victory over the beast, his image, the number. But also those who receive the mark of the beast and pledge their allegiance to the enemy and their hostility to God. And the fifth seal in the book of Revelation Chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says, He opened the fifth seal, or when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The cry of the martyrs, Lord, how long will those who put us to death continue to live in their arrogance and their seeming impunity? How long before you judge and establish righteousness on the earth? And the Lord says, wait a little longer until the full number of your brothers is accomplished. So this vision gives us a glimpse into the future. The day when that full number has been accomplished and all God's enemies receive their just recompense. And the declaration of those who witness this is, this is great. And this is amazing. And then they address God. They call him, O Lord God, the Almighty. It emphasizes God's absolute sovereignty and his omnipotence, that he has all power. He is Lord, and we are not. Mortal men presume to sit in judgment on God. I remember speaking with a man one time who was an atheist, very arrogant and proud, and he said to me, the idea of a God who would punish people forever in hell is simply laughable. Sadly, He's wrong. And on that day, there will be no laughter coming from his lips. God is the Lord, and we are not. Mortal men presume to sit on, in judgment on the Lord. In their arrogance, they critique his ways. They defy his authority. But he alone is sovereign over all creation. He is the Lord God, the Almighty. And they sing, just and true are your ways. The saints in heaven are witnessing the final outpouring of God's wrath, and there is no conflict in their hearts about what they're observing. Remember I said when we speak of the wrath of God, there's something in us that's a little bit unsettling, unsettled by that, right? There's nothing unsettled in that day because they will see things as they truly are. They'll see the wrath of God in its perfection and its power and its purity, and there will be absolute and complete agreement. They will say, this is just and this is true. God's just. God's judgment is entirely just and is based entirely in truth. In our day, there has been debate about the death penalty. And the two major objections that are raised against the death penalty is, number one, it is not, uh, it's irreversible. What if we put someone to death who actually later we find out they were innocent? You can't go back and fix that. And the reality is it's true. It is permanent. And there have been instances where innocent people have been convicted and put to death. That has happened. And that's a tragedy, which is why our system needs to be very, very careful in the imposition of the death penalty. But Scripture clearly says it ought to happen. 
When a man takes another man's life, by man he forfeits his life, Scripture says. But when God executes his wrath, there will be no mistakes. There will be no false accusations or erroneous convictions. God's verdict will be absolutely and flawlessly true. The second argument or objection to the death penalty is, oh, this is cruel and unusual punishment. It's excessive. It's inhumane. Well, again, the Bible tells us that it's right and necessary. One, a man who willingly murders another person by people, by man, his life should be forfeit. This is not a commentary on the death penalty, though. This is a commentary on God's wrath. God's wrath is true, and it's also just. It is not excessive. It is not cruel. It is the righteous and the holy response of God to the sins of men. It is not the ravings of an offended tyrant. It's the revelation of God's holy character. And hear me, if you and I could see the holiness of God for who he is and what he is, if we could understand his, the purity of his righteousness, then we would comprehend something of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and we would see just how necessary his wrath truly is. We would see that it is right, it is just, and it is true. Well, fourthly, they call him king of the nations. His sovereignty extends throughout the world, throughout his creation. In in Psalm chapter 2, it tells us that the kings of this earth uh, conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, and their pretensions are like the temper tantrum of a toddler. And the Lord just laughs and holds them in derision, it says. He alone is king of kings. He alone is Lord of lords. And one day, he will call every man who defies him to account. He is the Lord of the nations. And so then they ask the question, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? The reaction of those who love God is to fear him and to bring glory to his name. Now, for those who are opposed to God, his his wrath will inspire terror. It It will produce in them a fear that will cause them to want to run and to hide and to cry to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. But in the hearts of the redeemed, the revelation of his righteousness, even in his wrath, will produce a fear that compels us to draw near to our God. In in joyful fear, in reverence. I like this phrase, in delightful trembling before the Lord. Those who tremble at his word with with, with a delight and a joy. This is good, this is right, give me more. And then they say, for you alone are holy. The previous phrase said they delight to bring glory to his name. And and the, the idea of names in the Bible refers to a person's character. So giving glory to his name, well, the Old Testament and the New speak of God's name as holy. In Isaiah 6, when God reveals himself to Isaiah, the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Over and over in the Old Testament, he is called the Holy One of Israel. The song in Revelation, or excuse me, the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, Mary, the mother of Jesus, finds that she's pregnant. And she goes to her sister Elizabeth, who also is pregnant. 
miraculously because of her old age, not as a virgin birth, but, but because she was well past the age of childbearing, and God gives her the gift of John the Baptist. And Mary, in her joy, breaks out in song we call the Magnificat. And one of the lines that she, she speaks of the Lord, and she says, holy is his name. So when this song, they say, you alone are holy. There's none like our God. Hear me. Do you understand? The Bible says there's no one like God. He's holy. He alone is truly holy. He is so utterly different from us. If there's something about God that you don't understand, that doesn't seem, make the sen- seem to make sense with you, the problem's not in him. The problem's in us. He is holy and we're not. He is, the word holy means set apart in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it means weighty, heavy. There's a weight and a gravity to who God is. He is set apart from us as utterly different. We are not holy in the way God is holy. We're told to be holy, but that is a relative holiness. He is absolutely, in and of his very essence, he is holy. Everything he says is holy. Everything he says is just. Everything he says is true. And it tells us there, they all, one day all nations will come and worship our God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even the kings of the earth who defied him, they will be compelled to confess to their everlasting shame, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All people from every language and tribe and people and nation will confess that. And then finally they say, your righteous acts have been revealed. That that could be translated your judgments have been revealed. Because uh, that is the context, God's judgment on the wicked, his righteous, holy response to the sinfulness and the wickedness of men. For years and decades and centuries, the martyrs have been under the throne saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And for years and decades and centuries, the saints, the martyrs, have wondered, those who are the saints who are yet alive have wondered, When will God vindicate the holiness of his name? When will his justice be proclaimed throughout the earth as we see prophesied in the Old Testament? Well, here it happens. His judgment, his judgment is established. It's it's carried out. His justice is revealed throughout the earth. Now, again, in chapter 16, that's when this temporal judgment is poured out the revelation of it. And I want to make an important distinction here. What they're celebrating as they celebrate or rejoice in the wrath of God, this is very important. They are not celebrating out of a vindictive heart that says, finally, the people that I really, really hate are getting what they deserve. It's not bitterness. It's not vindication on their oppressors, but rather it's the earnest longing for justice to be established and revealed. And then they see it. And they have a holy joy because the righteousness of God is clearly seen by all. And there's not a single ounce 
of sinful malice or selfish bitterness. Can you imagine not a single ounce of malice or bitterness, but a total, absolute, joyful, righteous agreement with the justice of our God. So we find in the remaining of the, remainder of the psalm, this solemn procession coming out of the temple of God. After this, verse 5, after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in the heaven was open. This is the only time the word tent appears in the book of Revelation, taking us back to that Old Testament tabernacle during the time of the Exodus. This tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So we have these seven angels emerging from the presence of God. We have... uh, We see each one of them clothed in priestly garments, white linen, and a golden sash around their chest, emphasizing the fact that they are on a holy mission in the service of God. And one of the four living creatures, and remember around the throne there were four living creatures, well one of them comes and gives to each one of these seven angels a golden bowl filled with the wrath of God to take that and pour it out upon the earth. Seven angels dressed in priestly garments. Seven plagues, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. And John is emphasizing the solemnity of this when he says, the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And then to further inspire a sense of awe and majesty, it tells us that smoke filled the sanctuary with the glory, or from the glory of God and of his power. Again, that takes us back to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah tells us as the angels cry out, out of the holiness of God, it says the foundation shook and the temple was filled with smoke. But it goes back further to that tent of meeting where the cloud of God descended upon the tent, covering the tent of meeting and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Dennis Johnson calls it a cloud of unapproachable holiness. Now, we're going to see this unpacked in chapter 16, but I want to draw this to a conclusion. And I really just, usually I have like three or four points of conclusion, but I just want one this, this, this morning. One thing I want us to focus on, to talk about, to meditate on, to draw strength from. What am I to make of this scene that we just read about in heaven? There's seven angels and seven bowls of God's wrath and the the redeemed who've conquered the beast in his image and his number. They're holding harps. They're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. One primary lesson I want us to take home, and that is this. How are we to respond to injustice in this world? How do we respond to unjust treatment? How do we respond to grievous oppression or abuse? or even persecution. How can we trust God when it seems like the bad guys are winning? How can we walk in dignity, in the dignity of freedom and joy and security if we've been deeply wounded by others and they seem to be getting off scot-free? Well, Paul tells us, The suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. And that gives us hope regarding our own suffering and and the oppression that we experience. But how are we to respond to our oppressors? 
How are we to deal with the fact that they're walking around seemingly with impunity, having wounded us so very deeply? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is speaking to servants who suffer unjustly. Conscious of the gospel, they receive it with grace. Jesus left us an example. How? It says, he committed no sin. There's not a person here that can say that. Right? Neither was deceit found in his mouth. If we're honest, not a person in this room could say that either. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And can you not see the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then saying under his breath, my father will make it right. I don't have to revile. I don't have to vindicate myself. When they say, come down and prove that you're who you say you are, he could remain there knowing that his father would vindicate the righteousness of his person and of his work. He did not have to. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Paul, on the same theme, says in Romans chapter 12, 19 to 21, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then he concludes with this, this amazing statement. He says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Not only are we forbidden to be overcome by evil, where we walk around in resentment and bitterness and self-pity and hatred and all of those things, not a shred of malice. Do not be overcome with evil. But we're also commanded, overcome evil with good. How is that possible? It's because we know our Father will make it right. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So we leave it in his hands. And hear me. Some of you have experienced terrible oppression or abuse or mistreatment or injustice. Some I'm aware of, some I'm not. But there are people in this room who carry wounds that maybe nobody else knows about. And what exacerbates the pain of that wound is watching your oppressor walk around as if he is scot-free, living with absolute impunity. And every remembrance of his relative comfort and enjoyment is like a, a, a piercing to your soul. Well, the comfort that we have from this text this morning is not that some malicious desire to get even will be fulfilled, but rather that that violated sense of justice will be restored. Do not underestimate how very important that is. Let me say it again. And if your life has been relatively pain-free and you've never experienced that level of oppression or injustice or, or, or being, uh, being wounded in some grievous way, and you look at people carrying this around and going, what's their problem? Revelation 15 tells you what their problem is. 
Romans 12 tells you what their problem is. 1 Peter 2 tells you what their problem is. We've been wounded. And we have to believe that our Father will make it right. We can leave it with Him. And He will vindicate His own justice. And He will vindicate the righteousness of His people. That violated sense of justice will be restored. Our wounds will be healed once and for all. And those who carry out such oppression will be called to account. So we will sing with the saints, just and true are your ways. Great and amazing or marvelous are your deeds. When his righteous acts, when his judgments are revealed, when everything in this world that is wrong is made right, those who mocked God, who oppressed his people, who, uh, who devastated innocent or what we would consider innocent victims throughout the world, through oppressive governments and oppressive uh, religions and every form of oppression imaginable, every whether the victims were Christians or not, every offense will be called to account. And we'll stand in awe, healed of our own wounds. And the glory and the majesty of God will shine more brightly than we ever could imagine. And all the people of the earth will see it. Amen. Thank you.